Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. Well, we've come upon the first Sunday of the Great Fast. One of my favorites because my background is in art, and I do all kinds of art, but also iconography. And I'm all about vision and image. Our faith actually is all about how we see, how we see what? We see the invisible God made visible through his own physical order whether made by God himself directly or even man-made. And what we do on this Sunday is we commemorate what was a triumph of the right way to see and therefore to believe, that we can in fact see images, man-made images, in other words, icons, that portray Christ, the Mother of God, the angels, the saints, and it's okay. Now, is it okay? It is necessary. And no, we don't worship idols. We don't worship the image. We worship God exclusively, but we honor and adore the saints, the angels, the mother of God, and we do that through the imagery. We need imagery. It's how we are as human beings. We are made to see things. We are made to see an invisible God who becomes visible through things, which means that images of Christ, the Virgin Mary, the angels, are not only possible, but they are actually necessary. In the liturgical prayers for this Sunday, we sing in the Byzantine tradition this, and this comes from the Sunday evening Vesper service for the first Sunday of Great Lent. We also call the Sunday the Sunday of Holy Images. We sing this, exposing your bodily image for veneration, O Lord, we proclaim the great mystery of your work of salvation. O Christ, lover of mankind, you have been shown to our eyes not merely as an appearance, as the Manichaeans falsely believe, but in the reality of the flesh, whose nature brings us to your love. In other words, the Manichaean, if you're not familiar with that word, that was a heresy centuries ago by a Persian named Mani, and he taught that the physical world was somehow lesser than the spiritual world. And that is a concept that has been recycled in many ways and certainly is present in our modern times. In fact, 
That way of looking at life, where the spiritual and the physical are disengaged from each other, where the physical is actually, in a sense, lesser or meaningless or without value, and only the spiritual or the intellectual is enshrined, that disintegrated view is behind all of our problems because it's a non-sacramental view. Therefore, it is an incorrect way to see life, especially to see the human person and everything that has to do with the human person, like marriage and love, man-woman relationships, and so on. All those things are affected by how we see. And what this prayer is saying, and what this Sunday of Orthodoxy, it's also called the Sunday of Orthodoxy, which means not Orthodox Church, it means true belief, true faith, Sunday of Holy Images, Sunday of the Holy Icons, Sunday of Orthodoxy. There's several names, but basically it all has to do with the fact that imagery is not only allowable and important, but necessary. Necessary to us as human beings, because this is how we perceive and are put in touch with a reality beyond this world. So we can't just think about God. We can't just talk about God being in our head or in our heart. That's not enough. It's what oftentimes you hear today, basically, though, that's kind of an excuse for laziness, for a complacency towards God and towards worshiping God. In other words, going to church. I don't have to go to church because I have God in my heart. I can just talk to God. Well, yes, we can and we should talk to God, but there's so much more to it that enables us to actually experience God, to connect with God. And imagery is one of those things. Let's face it, we all carry around pictures of loved ones, mementos, things that remind us of something invisible, like an experience, a person's life, love, the love we have for someone, the regard, the memory. These are real things. They're the most real things, aren't they? Memories, love, experiences. These are the most real things in life, yet they are the most invisible. So if they're invisible, does that mean they don't exist? We don't believe in them? No, quite the opposite. We really believe in them. Experiences, love, life, values, memories, these kinds of things are the things that are most important to us. They have the most impact upon us, and yet they are invisible. And so we help to make them visible by having reminders, images that remind us or draw us into that experience, those memories. They make that person or event present to us. So too it is with icons. If we can do that with a flag or a photo of somebody or any kind of a symbol, candles on a birthday cake, whatever, why can't we do it with images of Christ, the Mother of God, the saints, the angels? Of course we can, and we must, because we as human beings were given five senses, one of those sight, so that we could see God and see imagery, things that remind us of God, that point to God. And so this Sunday of Orthodoxy, this Sunday of the Holy Images, is actually very therapeutic. It's good for our souls, for our minds, our hearts. We commemorate it also because it really commemorates the official defending or sanctioning of icons. This was in 846 AD by the Empress Theodora. Because what happened was, off and on for centuries, there was this heresy that kept raising its ugly head, that imagery was not allowed, that it was somehow against the Bible. And it was presumed that if we made images like paintings or even statues of Christ, the angels, the Virgin Mary, and so on, that this was somehow pagan, like idol worship. Well, course, we don't worship the actual object. The object, the painting or sculpture, helps us to worship God and to draw us into an adoration and prayer for the mother of God, the angels, the saints. So 
it immerses us in the reality of these persons. And as human beings, we are made for imagery. Jesus Christ himself was an image of the Father, and we are made in his image and likeness. So because God did become an image in the form of a human person, someone we can actually see, we can therefore portray him. He gave us the permission. He wouldn't contradict his own Bible. He gave us the permission by virtue of the fact that he became an image himself. He gave us the permission that is, it is okay to portray him in imagery. Now, what is interesting in Byzantine iconography, per se, we don't really portray God the Father. We portray the Son, nor do we actually portray the Holy Spirit. We do symbolize the Holy Spirit in the form of fire, like a fiery tongue, or of a dove, but we don't actually paint the Holy Spirit, in other words, in the form of a human being, nor do we paint God the Father. Now, sometimes you'll see God the Father, again, the old man with the white beard, even in icons. But this was a much later development and a bit of a, well, a bit of a departure from the actual style and what what I like to call the canons of iconography. The reason iconography does not paint God the Father, because only the second person of the Trinity, the Son, became incarnate, became an image. And so we dare not paint the God the Father who remained invisible nor the Holy Spirit, who remained invisible but was manifested as a dove or in fiery tongues. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a bird. So God the Father makes himself known through the image of his Son, the second person of the Trinity. So this is the only one that we of the Trinity, the only person of the Trinity that we paint in iconography, at least properly speaking, the image of the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate. So just a little bit of background into how and why we portray Christ and why we do not portray God the Father and the Holy Spirit. The closest we come, and it's a brilliant rendition, one of my favorites, is the icon of the hospitality of Abraham. In other words, it's three angels sitting around a table. And this actually is iconography's depiction of God as Trinity. It's the closest we come. But even then, God the Father and the Holy Spirit and even the second person of Trinity in this particular icon, is portrayed symbolically through the image of angels. But this actually happened. In Genesis chapter 18, three angels visited Abraham. He offered them hospitality, and later on he realized that he was visited by God. So this was a foreshadowing of the three persons of the Holy Trinity, God who is a union and communion of persons. So iconography uses three angels seated together around a table, which also has the connotation of Eucharist, of communion, of community. It's a very, very meaningful icon, one of my favorites, the icon of the Holy Trinity, sometimes also called the icon of the hospitality of Abraham. One of the customs we have on this day is to parade around with icons and singing about their vindication and about their value to us in terms of imagery, in terms of making God present to us through their imagery. And we do that in the church, and we sing special hymns. I like to do that with my children, so my children are very engaged in the liturgy. There's, there's a lot of kinesthetic dimension to the Eastern liturgies, a lot of tactileness, you know, where you touch things, hear, smell, taste. And we like to amplify that, especially with our children, because it's very engaging for them. There's a lot you can do within the Byzantine liturgy, a lot of latitude that you can have with children, yet remaining still within the proper confines of liturgy. We're not introducing anything foreign or crazy or wild or, you know, relevant and silly. Really not introducing anything at all. We're simply allowing the inner dynamism that's already there in the liturgy to be 
freed up to be magnified. So I do things like have my children go in procession, holding up the icons, holding them high up proudly in a sense of victory while we sing the hymns. And they do this in church. And they put the icons down on a table in the front of the church and they're blessed and they're in the view of everyone. So our children take part in the liturgy in that way without it being something foreign. It's very much consistent with the liturgy itself. When we come back, we're going to talk more about not only this first Sunday of Lent, but some more aspects of how Lent is very relevant to ourselves. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. Lent is a time in which we focus on three important things, three disciplines, fasting, prayer, and charity. So I want to thank someone for their charity to all of us here at Light of the East. His name is John Oberg. John, I want to thank you for your very complimentary letter to us. John says, thanks for your helpful tips to fight the porn addiction. God bless you. I heard you on the radio. So thank you, John. I'm glad our little tips helped. We talked a little bit about pornography and how actually the disciplines of Lent can help in that regard. So we have right in that little thank you from John, who we are in turn thanking, we have the disciplines of fasting, prayer, and charity. When we talk about these three disciplines, I want to suggest that 
they be applied very seriously, especially by married couples. You know, Lent is not only a time for our personal holiness in a very particular focused way, but it's also a time for the renewal of certain things, such as marriage. In other words, the most important, the most holiest things. And one of those things is marriage. Lent gives a wonderful latitude and platform for all kinds of great things to help our marriages. And even if your marriage is very happy, you believe that it is, that's good. Make it even happier. Strengthen it. Remember, those who do the best in anything, the ones that never settle for good enough, they're always in a perpetual state of trying to improve things, trying to make them better. Because not only does that help that person or persons, but they can then help other people. Let's face it, the better you get at something, the more you have to offer other people, the more, shall I say, expert you become. And it's the same with marriage as well. So during this time of the great fast with these Lenten disciplines, I want to suggest that married people focus on their marriage during Lent. Wherever your marriage is at, if it's in complete disaster, unfortunately, or if it is doing wonderful or anything in between, Lent is a time to focus. You know, there are three things that really are the three key ingredients to marriage. And these are the three things that Lent calls us to, to focus on. Those three things are prayer, humility, and honesty. Prayer, humility, and honesty. Let's take prayer, for example, for our married couples. First of all, there is increased prayer and prayer services at the church, the pre-sanctified liturgy, the All Souls liturgies, the St. Andrew of Crete. These things ought to be attended as much as possible by individuals, but also by married couples. In addition to that, there should be prayer between the couple at home. Take, for instance, the prayer of St. Ephraim, the classic prayer that we say in the Eastern churches. In fact, it's found in the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts, but it can be said anytime. The prayer of St. Ephraim, or the Jesus prayer, very brief, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you repeat that very slow and very thoughtfully. Those two prayers can be said easily by a married couple together. It doesn't take long. You can make them as long as you want or as often as you want, but at least do them each day together and then do them individually as well. The other thing about prayer in the home is that when a couple prays together, it really is true it really is true that they tend to stay together. And the reason is, is because prayer is how we connect with God. If we're praying with God as an individual, and then we do it as a couple as well, we're connecting ourselves and our marriage to God. And that can only help it. That can only help heal where there's healing, heal where healing is needed. It can only draw the couple together. Furthermore, when we talk about prayer, we talk about prayerfulness. In other words, they have a prayerful attitude in the home. This is that domestic church that we talk about a lot. That our home has a certain atmosphere prayer to it. The domestic church means something like a church, a home that's like a church, which means there's quiet, there's reverence, there's holy imagery, like we talked about earlier. There is a certain aura, maybe burn a little incense. It's okay too. Have times for prayer together, even if it's very short. Make sure you're praying individually and then attend the increased prayer services at the church during Lent. And this aspect of prayer brings me then to the next virtue, and that is humility. When a couple is praying together, it's also a form of humility. Humility is key. 
Because one of the key ingredients for a happy marriage, or a marriage that is renewed or healed, is that we don't blame one another. Even if one or the other person is doing something or has a habit that is kind of obvious or high profile in its in its badness. You know, let's say, for instance, a drinking problem or pornography or anger or abusive language or ignoring one another, not communicating, all these things that harm a marriage. Those are identifiable behaviors, but the identifiable behaviors are never the source of the hurt and the problem. It's what we do about those things. What both persons do in their relationship between each other about those things. Humility does this. It doesn't look outside the self and put all the blame on the other or just think, well, gee, if that other person would just straighten up or stop doing this or maybe start doing something, that I would be okay, that we will be okay. That's a fallacy. Again, no matter what obvious high-profile behavior might be problematic, the solution is never just to focus on that person or that behavior. See, that actually comes from pride. And there is no end, there is no end to the depths that we need to descend in humility. Sometimes I think we just don't have this concept on our radar screen because I see it so rarely. We really don't understand what humility means. Humility, and again, I refer you to that icon that I mentioned before, the icon, the Trinity. In that icon, you see the three heads of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, again, symbolized by angels. These heads are bowed in deference to one another. Humility is about deferential love. It means that it puts the onus on herself. It doesn't say, you made me angry, or because of you, or you're always doing this, or you never do that. You never use those always and never words. What humility does and deferential love does is it says this. It looks at oneself and say, okay, all I can say is that I feel this when this person does that or doesn't do something. I have this feeling, anger, hurt, nervous, anxiety, whatever, nervousness. So why do I have it? Look at myself. Is it me? Maybe I've got a little bit of a so-called problem. Maybe I'm hypersensitive to something. Maybe I'm functioning from my own woundedness, and so I project that in the other person, in their onto their behavior. And I can be very indicting, very condemnatory, very judgmental, very offensive in my own way, very impatient. We think we're right because we look at the other person and say, well, they're doing this or that, and it's wrong, and it's making me mad. No. Never say, you made me anything. Say, I feel this way. I experience this whenever this happens or something doesn't happen. Because we get hurt or upset when something doesn't happen as well. So it puts the onus on ourselves. It defers to the other and allows for discussion. In other words, it's presenting to another person your thoughts, your feelings, yes, how you're experiencing something, but you're not doing it in a way where you're using it to indict them, to club them on the head. You're simply putting it out there like an objective thing that both of you can look at. That invites the other person then into discussion, into their own self-reflection. At least it allows for the possibility. But if we just blame them and think that the problem is always outside of ourselves, then we'll never have any healing, never have any progress. I like to say whenever I counsel marriages, and I do a lot of that these days, is that there's no such thing as a bad guy. It's never about 
a bad person, a bad guy, the person at fault, the blame. It's always about insight, coming to know what something really is and why. I call it the two W words. What is it really that I'm seeing and perceiving? Is my perception absolutely correct? Is it totally congruent with the reality? It may not be. But also, why is the person doing that or not doing that? Why do I feel this way when they do that or don't do that? The what and the why are key ingredients to good communication, good deferential love in marriage. And then the third thing, honesty. Honesty means seeing things as they really are. And we have to really sift through our own stuff to be able to do that because we tend to see things and sift them through the lens of our own personal baggage, our own personal experience. So the goal in marriage is to try to see things as honestly and objectively as possible and to know when maybe I'm sifting something through my own stuff, my own baggage, and it comes out in a less than helpful reaction on my part. Honesty is also about sharing ourselves with the other person. One of the hallmarks of marriage, one of the gems of marriage, and the key ingredients of marriage is that we're able to share ourselves completely with the other person. No secrets, self-revelation, gift of self. We're going to talk more about other ways in which the practices of Lent can really help us in our lives. I want to thank you for listening today. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchak. The Church has 2,000 years of wisdom to share on what it takes to live life gracefully. We're so overwhelmed by how much our faith has transformed our marriage and family especially. We want everyone to experience the incredible gift that the Catholic vision of life and love really is. More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchak. Weekdays, 10 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.